This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, as much as I would love to launch into a discussion with you right now on when the appropriate time to begin playing Christmas music is, I would instead (laughs) rather... After uh, Thanksgiving. (laughs) I would rather... uh, See, you're too easily distracted. Well, I did cheat this year, though, because it's just been a challenging year, so I started listening to the Cambridge Boys Choir singing Christmas hymns before Thanksgiving, so... Oh, just had yeah. to be transparent there, but please, you, do you, you've seen the one with the with the helium balloon, right? Have you seen that the false falsetto? I, oh no, I haven't. Um, yeah, look it up. Yep, boys choir oh, helium no. balloon. Yep, it's it's great. Um, all right. So anyway, we got distracted anyway. But what I would like to really talk about is we left off last time talking about deconstructionism, the evangelical evangelical movement. We were wondering if those terms were even that helpful or if they were imposed on the whole project or if it's something even unique. Uh, and you said something that I agree with, which was that, you know, when we're looking at perhaps moral failures or the breakdowns of philosophical systems, we shouldn't be looking at the lives of Christians. We should be looking at the life of Christ, who himself was the one who lived his standards out clearly was the most orthodox person and the had the best orthopraxy as it were um and so i agree with that that we do look to christ as the foundation for the value and the teachings of the system and the way that he taught them in the and the life that he is leading us in but i think if i was looking at that from a bit more cynical perspective and i'm being a bit facetious here because i can think of counter arguments to my own question here but I could see a way in which people might rightly ask, what, what does it matter how Jesus was or how Jesus is if that doesn't change the way that I am or the way that his followers can be? And so I think there, there's a little bit of value in that, right? Of saying, so what? Okay, Jesus lived a great life, but if his followers can't, does that in some way diminish the force of the argument of what it is that he was promising if by his presence through the work of the Holy Spirit, those who are claiming to be part of that actually don't have different lives. Uh, Maybe that's where some of the disillusion comes from, uh, that people, yeah, I used, you know, it's not so much a, a, a rational decision as it falls by the wayside. It no longer makes sense. It doesn't answer the questions that I have or when I use the retainer analogy, it's something that I kind of outgrew, put in the drawer and forgot about and, and fizzled out of it. But I wonder, I just, yeah, you know, when you said that last week, I agreed with you and I still do, but that stuck in my mind after the conversation. And so I wanted to pitch that back to you to see if you think that makes sense in some way. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you did bring that up. It's a completely legitimate question. So yeah, here Cameron, you're going on and on about how Jesus is the embodiment of Christianity. He's the ultimate expression of Christianity. He is the one authentic human being in human history. I think I said that too. 
wonderful, lovely, poetic expressions, but we don't seem to be seeing transformation in his followers. So what good does that do? So yes, I think that's an important question. And I do think that we, the argument does seem at first blush to be diminished by that. And so in that sense, we want to take these questions that are arising from moral failure very seriously. I do think I mentioned on the last podcast as well, Nathan, that I think that this kind of behavior also serves to undermine the plausibility structure of the church. And that is a very real sense of wavering that happens when we when we see that. So I think another question here that arises, though, has to do with who we're looking to to display Jesus's transformation. Hmm. Where are we looking in the first place? Tell me more. Now, the examples that we can... Well, you know, of course, so you'll see where I'm going with this right away. The examples that we're pointing to or that make the headlines are people who have achieved quite a level of notoriety. Let's just go ahead and use the the word here. They are often celebrities. Mm -hmm. Now, I think I think we should let's let's if you're okay with this, Nathan, let's pause here for just a second to talk about celebrity, because I want to venture a few thoughts and then kick it over to you to see what you think here. But celebrity is kind of I don't I don't want to call it a necessary evil <laughs> so much because evil is a pretty strong word. But I would say c- celebrity is kind of an inevitability of human existence within movements, within any kind of different field. There are going to emerge certain voices who achieve a level of notoriety and a level of fame who become known as spokespeople. And so I think we can draw a meaningful distinction here between the men and women who, on the one hand, are faithfully, so we're talking about ministry now, let's talk about Christianity now, the men and women who are serving the Lord faithfully and with excellence and happen to meet with some level of notoriety, some level of fame. So I think that's that's one example, but then we can draw a distinction between those folks and then people who work tirelessly to carefully cultivate an image and to care- carefully cultivate or develop a platform and find ways to con- to continue building that platform. I want to be careful here cuz it's not necessarily wrong for instance to to build a platform per se. It's not necessarily wrong to try to amplify a a specific voice if we think this person is doing a lot of good. But I think you can you can sense the difference there between the two, right? On the one hand, the fame is a byproduct of faithfulness, and on the other, there's more human ambition and ingenuity behind it. So I think I want to... You're saying you didn't follow Mother Teresa on Twitter. Well, see, there you go. Yeah, there's there's an example, of course. I don't think anybody would accuse Mother Teresa of carefully cultivating her image, so to speak. But nevertheless, she did achieve worldwide fame and notoriety. But I think most people would also admit that that was certainly not her first goal. That wasn't her aspiration. But I think we could have a whole 
bunch of people pop up into our minds who have made that their major pursuit. And that's where a lot of the problems seem to come in. But does that distinction make sense to you, Nathan, as fame as an inevitable feature of human life, but there are legitimate ways of not necessarily pursuing it, but on the one hand, it, it could be a byproduct, and then on the other hand, it could be more of a kind of ambition that leads you in the wrong direction. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, so, well, halfway. So the the part that makes sense, or I would just point out that, that that's, we started off talking about Christians and moral failure, but moral failure is not unique to Christianity or Christian celebrities, um, nor just because you're a celebrity does that mean it ultimately leads there. So those distinctions being made, I think where things get complicated is that almost, that there, there almost is an assumption that there's some scandal with being a celebrity in the secular definition of the word. I mean, that's part of what keeps the tabloids running, right? Um, but in some ways, it's not only to be expected, but it's almost cultivated, the failure and the scandal and the but none of that is considered to be hypocrisy because there isn't a standard that's being violated. With Christian celebrities, they're they're proclaiming to be living by a standard and then failing to meet that standard themselves. So you can't be a hypocrite if you have no standards. You can't be a moral failure if you don't have any definition of morality. So what you're saying is true. However, there's an extra layer of icing on the cake here, as it were, for religious leaders, because they are, in some ways, they gain their celebrity, whether it's cultivated or whether it was just the natural outworking of their faithful obedience in the same direction. They have the the avenue through which they achieved celebrity status was an avenue of speaking about a very specific way of life and standard of behavior and living. So I'm with you all the way, but we're going to make it even more difficult for the Christian here before we move forward. Yeah, we've the ante is upped there, of course, if you're talking about a Christian leader. But the reason I th- I'm bringing this in here, and the reason I think it's a salient point, is because most of the, the major headline-making examples of moral failure in the church are people who are famous. Mm-hmm. And so I think I want to just very quickly here make make an argument and say that to dismiss Christianity or to let's to let's use the terminology we were using at the beginning here to say that Jesus's transformation is not evident in his believers on the basis of the failure of a Christian celebrity or somebody who happens to be famous in the church it's understandable in some ways and these examples are painful but that's a relatively superficial argument. Well, now, that okay. doesn't mean it's it's an argument I have no sympathy with. Yeah, <laughs> I just I'm just putting that out there and now let's let's knock that back and forth a little bit here. Okay. So so here would be my um I think yes to what you said. However, back to what you're saying of the celebrity being a spokesman, I know a lot of people who have been burned by the church through moral failure on a non-celebrity level but who maybe thought, well, that was just unique to me or my church. But then when you have a celebrity do it, that celebrity becomes a spokesman for a broader cultural awareness where you say, okay, see, it wasn't just at my church that the preacher ran off with the piano player. The whole system 
all the way through clear to the very top right. is corrupt. And then that gives me much more, uh, a much better base for punting the whole thing. Um, cause the celebrity becomes the spokesman to say the thing that I've, exp- it's sort of like, um, I remember taking a sociology class and thinking in some ways I'm not learning anything new here. We're studying all things that I've seen in my life, but I didn't have the vocabulary for it. And so now we're applying vocabulary, an academic vocabulary to a thing that I've observed in my life and it's coming together and it's making sense. So I think there could be people who see moral failure clearly in the lives of their the Christian neighbor next door or their local church, but don't have the broader picture to fit it into. And then when you have a, a celebrity that um, crashes spectacularly, then you sort suddenly have an even bigger narrative to fit it in with. And so, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's the difference here that I'm agreeing with you. It's not a difference. I'm agreeing just at a different level. Well, no, and that's helpful because I think in a similar line of thinking, we can apply it to when a representative of a particular guild or profession fails, we often see that in symbolic or kind of spokesman terms. So what I have in mind here is if you have, let's say there's a policeman who has mm-hmm. abused their power. We've seen several of these instances in recent years in the news, it's hard not to then think in larger terms, or let's say this is a soldier, right? When there's, if there's a military scandal, for instance, there's a similar kind of phenomenon that occurs where a lot of people tend to, th- to think in broader terms about the military in general, rather than on the basis of these, these people who were committing war crimes, for instance. Does that make sense? So if you've if it's a member of a certain guild or class or field or profession, and something similar takes place here with with regard to Christianity. I mean, Christianity, as you mentioned, the ante is upped. We are held to a high moral standard. And if you have somebody who is famous for being on the front lines of ministry, yes, they serve as a spokesman, a spokesperson, or an ambassador, a representative and so it would make sense to see that that as kind of a larger symbolic picture of what's going on on a more local level as well. And of course, I don't. I want to be very careful here. I don't. I don't want to suggest that people aren't seeing s- examples of failure just in their local churches and in their own lives. That absolutely is 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 taking place. But you then to. But I just I want I just I wanted to bring the fame factor in here because that's part of the large scale kind of media spotlight. And I do so I do think that's one I do think that's one factor. And I also wanted to bring in the notion of fame and celebrity because in some ways we can lament Christian celebrity and we can we can talk about the ways in which that can be harmful to try to pursue a platform. But I also want to bring in the fact that there is an inevitability to fame and notoriety as well. And that's a feature of human life. And so if somebody is serving faithfully and with excellence in a particular field, they happen to be more frontline and there's a byproduct of greater notoriety and fame, I think that's that's fine. But if we're 
putting all of our efforts and all of our ambitions into platforming somebody and getting their name out there and pushing forward a celebrity, that's something else entirely. So bringing those in there because this is just part of the conversation as well. But then, Nathan, you said something that I think gets more at the universal aspects of this and brings us maybe back to our own communities and our own local churches. And that is that deep inconsistency in our behavior, hypocrisy, if you will, is something that is not unique to Christianity. What's unique is that we're held, we hold ourselves, we have submitted ourselves, if we're, if we're Christians, to the rulership of Christ. So we are, we're held to that higher standard. But human inconsistency, holding people to standards that we, we don't keep, that also is part of human life. And it's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but it's one of the major reasons that I find myself at the feet of Christ again and again and again, because I don't meet my own standards. I can't meet the standards, and I do hold people to standards that I myself don't keep, and I need help. And that darkness, that inconsistency in my heart is part of the reason that I need to be saved. So that's that's another major factor here, is that this is part of my problem. And so when I see this, it's not just an it's not an us and them mindset. It's not it's not a I'm not like those other Christians. It's no my natural my my natural inclinations. I am and I need help and therefore I need Christ and I need his church and I need accountability and I need help. Okay. So I've talked, speaking before college campuses or something, kind of talked about this idea of, um, you know, a, a certain sense of lament when, you know, somebody goes looking for apples on a pine tree and then doesn't find any and then denies the existence of fruit. Um, because we know fruit grows on trees, but I didn't find any on this tree, so fruit must not exist. I was saying, in a certain to, to tie that in there of like, so is the church advertising itself correctly on what it is that it's providing? That would be my question. So when we see people walking away from the church, is that, is that part of a, eh, not the right term, but is it part of a failure to correctly market and label what it is, the, the project that we're on collectively as a Christian community? You, you see what I'm saying? Like, are we, are we giving the wrong, what, what does it, what does the church have to do in order for the for the people gathered within it as a community to have your perspective rather than any sign of brokenness and I'm out of here. Yeah. Are are we I'm so on one hand we're talking about deconstruction but I'm I'm just curious about what it is that we think we're doing when we go to church and if that plays into this at all. Well, as far as I can see if you look into most of these conversations that are taking place around what's sometimes called the deconstruction project or deconstructing one's faith, many of them revolve around abuses 
And so that's why history has been such a vital discipline in this conversation, because the aim is to recover the, the original intent for the church and where some of the practices got started in the first place. And just as a side note here, with regard to the whole deconstruction project, which for the record, I think is not always the most helpful label. I guess labels are inevitable as well. But in some ways, I think this is just people reckoning, coming to a point of reckoning and asking serious questions about traditions, modern traditions within the North American church. And why that's why also I think a lot of people are pressing into more magisterial traditions or, or they want to, to kind of move more toward an ancient kind of faith so they can push past some of the superficial modern cultural accretions of the church, many of which are very individualistic. Me, hang, hang on, let me interrupt yeah. you there. Sure. Let, let, me, let, me, let me just interrupt you in the middle there. So explain this one to me though, because as the, the trend toward the more magisterial embodiments of Christian expressions of faith happens, those, most of those magisterial embodiments have some pretty messed up moral failures writ large throughout their history. Oh yeah. You, Help you me with talk the disconnect the, there. Yeah. The beginning, the, yeah. Where, I mean, where do you even start? Let's the, a lot of the, a lot of these people are going to Anglican churches. We could talk about the basis of the founding of the Anglican Church, of course. Yes. So what we, I think, are running up against is the human condition. And that runs the risk here of sounding like a dismissal of some kind. It, it is not. It's not. But it sounded like earlier, Nathan, you were sort of trying to press into, let's, let's get transparent and realistic, or at least try to understand what it is the church is supposed to be doing in the first place, so that we, there's not, it's not so much that there's a case of false advertising going on here, it's just a, a case of us sobering up and being honest. So, an expression you use with frequency, and I think it's a wise one, is, I'm saddened, but not surprised. So, looking at immoral behavior among Christians and in the church, and looking at moral hypocrisy in particular, carries some real force because of the transformation that happens when we submit to Christ and follow him. I think what we're going to have to, the tension that we're going to sit in here a little bit and what we're having to wrestle with here is that this is a, a moment of transition, I think, in North American Christianity. And I'm just going to give you some very raw thoughts, then we can work through these. Nathan can help me work, can set me straight. Nathan, you can set me straight here. I think you have had a nation where the church and scripture have exercised an outsized influence more so than than many other than most other modern nations let's be honest here in the united states now that that influence is on the wane now 
I think we are moving the transition I was talking about earlier. I think we are moving toward post Christendom or a, we're moving toward a post Christian moment. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're we're moving in that direction. And these kinds of transitions are very revealing when it comes to your actual faith commitments. And I think what we're finding is that a lot of people are more seem to be, and I, I don't know that this is necessarily recognized always in our lives. We have all, we have these major blind spots, but it certainly seems to be that a lot of people have made the mistake of kind of conflating their faith with their citizenship and with their political affiliations. And so as that influence wanes, are we fighting with everything that we have to hold on to influence, to hold on to our platforms, or are we doing what we always ought to be doing, and that is being faithful, pressing into fidelity to Christ, and considering what does that look for look like for me now? And one of the great, Dallas Willard used to call it the great omission, one of the, the key missing elements and in most, in many of our, certainly our, our large-scale kind of conferences and pushes in North American Christianity really concerns obedience to Christ, going into all the world and making disciples. And so that, that has to do with how you actually live. That's, your, that's virtue. That's living for Jesus and actually obeying his commands and doing what he says that's often been sidelined. And it's not true of every church. This is it's so important to point this out. I'm talking just about some of the major the major ministry spotlights that we usually see. That was not a major point of emphasis. I think the major point of en- emphasis was evangelism and to make sure that as many people get to hear the gospel as is possible and to spread the word and to galvanize people into activism and movements. And that's fine so far as it goes, but very little emphasis, very little of that firepower on discipleship and actually how we live. What do we do now between now and coming face to face with our maker? So, I think, think we've been living with, a, with a some of that. Perpetuating, yeah. Do you think there's a self-perpetuating um, problem here is that as you begin to feel that you're losing cultural momentum or however you want to define that, that you begin caring more about numbers of, <laughs> of people connected and involved. And as you care more about numbers, you care, care less about the commitment of what that means. Um, and so we're we're focusing on head counts of numbers of Christians in order to feel like we're culturally significant rather than focusing on the the depth of those who are there. Um, you can see how that could pick up steam, right? We're, we're, we're more interested in the, in the numbers than in the depth. And so we're going to continue to um, you know be shallow, but widespread <laughs> seems to be, I, I mean, is that, is that too cynical of a way of saying what you're saying that we're, that we're shooting for? Um, I guess nobody would come right out and say that, but maybe that was the the byproduct that, that happened from that. 
Um, that being said, we do want to loop back in what you were saying there is Jesus has extremely high standards and expectations. Uh, the whole New Testament and way of teaching, very high. Um, we, it's not like, oh, Christians sin. No, Paul is pretty clear. You throw them out of the church if they're involved in certain things. We don't see that a whole lot anymore either, right? Um, of, of removing people from the church by the church of saying, you know, you do not get to represent us anymore because you've violated what we hold to be most sacred and clearly aren't walking with the Lord. That's not a, that's not a big part of your, I would, I would hazard a guess that the vast majority of people listening to this podcast have not seen that happen in their church in their lifetime where somebody was kicked out of your church publicly. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, like that's, that's going to be the thing that saves the church is kicking more people out of it. I'm what, what I am saying is that, uh, having boundaries of what Christian affiliation means might bring some more clarity onto what it is exactly that we're dealing with. Um, because yeah, there are some celebrities who by all popular standards, you'd be shocked to know that they're Christians, but you know, if you look at the details of what they say in their lives, they are. Um, and that's, that's true for everybody everywhere. And even for ourselves, as you, as you pointed out earlier, but so I just wonder at what point of, of having a, and maybe that's why the more magisterial churches feel like they have a better grip on this is because they have a, a, a more clear definition of what it is that they are. And so representation is easier to figure out when you have defined spokes people within certain traditions um, well, let me so we, try some, we want to balance that out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of the, so I belong to a magisterial church and I can, speaking for myself, part of what draws my wife and I there is that it is, first of all, it's not catered to my wishes and desires. So there's a kind of anti-individualism baked right in. And another wonderful feature, so our church, for instance, the service does not revolve around the message. The preaching is is important, but it's not the main course. To risk sounding trite here, Christ is actually the main course. So the whole the whole service revolves around, begins with confession and then worship, the message, and then communion. And so it's wonderful to walk into a church that's not customized to fit my experience, that's not built around my own sensibilities. So it's wonderful to be sort of, yeah, to to have my head set on straight and to pray prayers that I didn't necessarily come up with. And to say these ancient confessions that have been pronounced down the ages and to celebrate those words and to celebrate the reality of those words and then to partake of Christ. So it's in some ways the antidote to what I'm getting all of the other hours and days outside of that sanctuary. So it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful alternative. 
And I think, yeah, alternative might be a really important word here. My, my friend Jonathan Welch often says that. He's, he, would, he would venture that a lot of people are drawn to some of these more magisterial traditions because nothing else looks like an alternative. It looks like part of the cultural landscape. And I think there's some real force to that claim. Certainly that's, that's been true of me. But I do, I want to press into something that you said earlier there as well regarding depth. I think it's, it's true on the one hand, when you feel that your back is to the wall, culturally speaking, certainly you might be prompted to seek validation in numbers. But the other problem with depth in general when it comes to the modern world is that it's just nearly impossible to measure it in the ways that we want to. Hmm. with our traditional metrics. Well, I say traditional, with our modern metrics. I think we're getting a crash course (laughs) in the fact that greater numbers does not necessarily spell faithfulness, right? And so if you're looking for depth, it's going to, you're going to be, if you're truly looking for spiritual depth and really spiritual maturity, which I think both you and you and I, Nathan, would be in agreement that spiritual maturity is one of the great missing elements and one of the one of those pursuits that need to be front and center in North America now. But if you're looking for spiritual maturity, you're going to be committed to the long haul. There are no shortcuts with that. Yeah. It's it's grueling. It's it, it's intensely rewarding, but you have to give it time as well and. I'm also thinking of C.S. Lewis's argument in Mere Christianity when he talks about Christians behaving badly, but he also talks about the fact that people are in very different places with regard to their spiritual maturity. So if you would if you'd run into Cameron McAllister 20 years ago, plenty of people would have drawn the very sound conclusion that I was not a Christian at all. <laughs> we all so if we're on journeys, we're necessarily going to be in different places. That's not to make an excuse. That's not to say that the apparent lack of transformation in some of our communities doesn't represent a serious threat to our beliefs. It can, and it often does, but it also, it's it's to give us a kind of balanced and realistic perspective about the way human, human about human moral development in general, which Mm-hmm. is for most of us, let's face it, a long, painstaking process. Yeah, so you're you're pitching a vision of the church there that where the church is the place to work out that journey and that wrestling. And so I think that's the important thing we want to point out is, is the distinction there is not saying the church is the place where we have it all figured out, but it is the community by which I can see myself wrestling and growing in throughout the rest of my life. I'm wondering, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, agreeing with you, first of all, that spiritual depth takes time. So that's the the limiting factor there in most of our lives is time. But I was wondering about, you know, I've seen statistics saying that the people, the young people who are most likely to walk away from their faith are the ones that have had age group specific customized worship events. So your youth group actually might not be as helpful as you think it is in many ways because that's the, the the people who went through with their same cohort and age all the way through are those most likely to leave. And I wonder if it's because we're not seeing the full range 
of what my future life looks like at all of these times in my spot. As a 15-year-old, can I see the 35-year-olds? And as the 35-year-olds, can I see the 55-year-olds? And so for me in my mid-30s, it's wild to go to church with people in their late 80s and early 90s who are pursuing Christ and trying to figure out what discipleship looks like at their age and what Christ has for them to be doing. And what that does is it puts the bound, it puts the marker way out there. It's not just 20 years ago we could evaluate Cameron's life. It's 20 years from now. It's, you haven't... You haven't gotten there. I haven't gotten there. Nobody listening to this has gotten there, but we're part of a church because that's the place where we figure it out. So what we're saying here, as we loop this back around to my original question, a couple things. One of those is your church is not going to be able to compete with the world in coffee, music, or fashion. Um, <laughs> that's Amen. It's not going to happen. You can't, cool your way into, you can't cool your way into the kingdom. What the church uniquely specializes in is the ability to provide and construct a community where you can be fully known and still truly loved, warts, wrinkles, and all. So that doesn't mean that we laugh at or gloss over difficulty, brokenness, sin, certainly not, or moral failure, but the church has a fairly well-developed system for not putting people in leadership who are involved in these things, and there's a there's a, a a, a category and a format and a, and a biblical instruction on how to help all of us at whatever spot we are on whatever spectrum there is. There's there's room for all of us there, but it's actually in being vulnerable about who we are that the community is most deeply formed in a way that is the most helpful, A, to our growth, B, to our help of others who are trying to grow alongside us, and then C, I think, to a realistic view of humanity that the church really speaks to and helps with. So when we do that, I think what happens then is... I've been looking at the sort of a, a new scientific field. I don't, I mean, people debate whether or not it's scientific or not. Uh, so they're called attribution studies. And in attribution studies, you may have started to see this. So a hurricane will happen and people, and then you'll see meteorologists saying, and this hurricane is this many times, you know, 0.1% worse because of man-made or human-caused climate change. And so we're, we're looking to say, here's a bad thing that happened, and it was because of, of man-made climate change, um, which is the actual functional definition of climate change now is that it's man-made. But And there's some severe problems of whether or not you can actually do that with a scientific method and get there. But what <laughs> I was reading somebody who pointed out and said, it's very interesting that we always see that in the negative. So climate change is bad um, when there's a hurricane, when there's a tornado, when there's a, a flood. Um, and by the way, the IPCC report says that those aren't more prevalent or worse now, but science aside, the point I wanted to make is this guy was saying, it's interesting. Nobody, you know, effectively says, oh, it was a, a wonderful sunny day in South Georgia, just absolutely beautiful fall day. And this was twice as likely to happen because of man-made climate change. We, we look for the boogeyman, but then we only attribute the boogeyman to the things that we deem bad, but don't think of all of the the beauty and goodness that we're necessarily then equating with it. And so I think the exact same thing happens with my, well, why don't we see the transformation in the lives of Christians uh, if Christ is who he says he is? You're taking a pretty narrow look at your Twitter feed or a pretty narrow look at one individual out of a multitude, an uncountable multitude ultimately, according to the biblical record of what's going on there. So I think there's some room for appropriately balancing that out and then 
as we see that in the context of the full size of our Christian community, as you know, Cameron was saying, that's part of it. I'm going there not as an individual. I'm there to be part of something bigger. And are there people there who are going to uh, fail in spectacular ways? Yes, yes, there are. But are there the other 99.9% of people who are living faithful, steady Christian lives who are going to help rehabilitate that person in relationship with Christ? And do we serve a Savior who goes after the lost, the 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 99 and one, right? And so it's all part of the story. And so I think it's a valid critique that we, that I had at the beginning, but it's not the whole picture. And so our interaction in Christian community is really where we see the full picture of what's happening. And yeah, so that allows the cynic to put things in proper perspective and give us a little pause on uh, the degree to which we look down our nose and forget to see that the Lord has a lot of work to do on us all. Yeah. And I think maybe a, a parting thought along those lines, Nathan, would be that I love the phrase household of God, which Paul uses quite a bit. And if we think about the church as a household, and we take into consideration the fact that it is, it is caught as much as taught then I think we can appreciate why it's so important for younger people in particular to be a part of what's going on in the larger life of the church. And I don't think that that precludes children's programs, of course, and I don't think that precludes creative strategies for making Christianity understandable to younger minds. Of course, absolutely, we need all of that. But... Nathan, you and I, we so often talk about some of the stories from when we were younger and how we learned a great deal by overhearing our elders, and whether that's our parents or our parents talking with family friends and so on and so forth, that's, if that's the case in our homes, that ought to apply to our churches as well. And I'm always so excited and so grateful I don't know what my children's future holds because I'm a finite human being and I have great prayers and faith and hopes for my children, but I don't know. But I do know that I love it when they see us praying the Lord's Prayer, when they watch us taking communion and they think it's just really weird and they don't understand, but they're catching some of this. They're overhearing some of this. And that this all happens before they're shuffled off to children's church. And I think that's just so important. That's so important for them to recognize that this is, my goodness, this is not something I will one day outgrow. This is something that I grow into. And it may, there may be some elements about, of it that are mysterious. There may be others that seem incredibly simple. But the profundity and the depth are so rich that they are literally inexhaustible. Because Christ is inexhaustible. So when we have that kind of a vision, I think that prepares us for the kind of cosmic dimensions of church. But then on the other side... I love what Dallas Willard used to say. I think we should approach church like Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And he used to also say, I don't, I don't really trust any discipleship program that doesn't look like AA. And so in essence, we should all be going there and saying, my name is Cameron McAllister and I am a recovering sinner. And that's what we are as Christians. We are recovering sinners. And by God's grace, we're pressing into the reality of his salvation and his newness of life imparted to us. But we're, we're still, we're having to do some deeds of mortification. We're having to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that is a, that is a process. But also, just to chime in once again and to reinforce what Nathan was saying, there are numerous wonderful examples of Christ's transformation in and if you don't see them in your own li- in 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 your own community and your own in your own places here's a, just a gentle word of challenge to you they are there you're just you're not looking hard enough let's pray pray that the lord will open up your eyes i know it firsthand from from my experiences in my own family and people who I've who I've met in my church and in my community, they are there. And in some ways, it's a profession of faith to say that. But the transformation that Christ offers is real and is powerful. And in the end, the moral failures and the darkness of the human condition will not have the last word. But there's so much more that could be said here. And we've in some ways, I think spoken a little bit more expansively than the deconstruction sort of project would, would lead you to believe in the title, but I think we've we've talked about that here and there as well. So thank you so much for listening in, and this is Thinking Out Loud, and hey, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, what we're up to, what we're writing, where we are speaking, you can do so by heading over to our website, www.tol together.com that's t-o-l together.com and if you want to support the work that we're doing you can go and donate on that website but thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time thanks for listening to thinking out loud if you'd like to learn more about what we do book one of our speakers or make a donation visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com and lastly If you like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.